So maybe with your mindfulness and clear comprehension, some of you might have noticed that there is a new person on stage with us this evening. And in light of that, I want to uh, uh, welcome uh, Jill Shepard. Um, we are so grateful that she um, endured the bureaucracy of this country for days and hours to get here. So um, welcome and, and thank you for joining our community. Tonight I'd like to begin with a story. Once upon a time, the Buddha, before he was fully awakened and on his, his path towards awakening, had explored these austerity practices that were actually quite damaging to his body. And in, uh, in some places in these early Buddhist texts, he describes some of the practices he was doing. And I wanna share with you just a little bit of that, of this austerity practice that he was engaged in. He said, suppose I were to take only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, of lentil soup, vetch soup or pea soup. And so I took only a little food at a time, only a handful at a time of bean soup, lentil soup, vetch soup or pea soup. And as a result, my body became extremely emaciated simply from my eating so little. My spine stood out like a string of beads. My ribs jutted out like the jutting rafters of an old rundown barn. The gleam of my eyes appeared to be sunk deep in my eye sockets like the gleam of water deep in a well. And all this simply from eating so little. And so here we're given this, what I would call this archetypal image of austerity. And probably, there might be some people, but probably most of us can't relate to, to that kind of austerity practice, that, that act of starving ourselves and not nourishing ourselves. But I wanna take a moment here to point out what I've found in my own practice, and I've seen this in so many, uh, uh, lives of spiritual practitioners is I, I do think there's a modern austerity that many of us fall into that is is similar that we can some part of our minds feels like maybe it will lead to our freedom or awakening and what i noticed is this austerity practice of being so hard and judgmental myself kind of the the self-criticism and hate the giving ourselves a hard time have you noticed your mind engaged in that kind of austerity practice? And how it starves the heart, how it takes away the necessary nourishment to practice. I think that's one of the things I've, especially early retreats, I, I realized how skillful my mind was at this. It, it felt like, it had uh, attained a PhD in this kind of austerity practice. <laughs> and 
And what I want to point out is, and we hear this in the Buddhist story, is, is this process of moving out of the starvation and into a kind of nourishment that leads to awakening. And we see this in the story of the Buddha, is why I continue the story. There is this turning that he has as he's doing this austerity practice. And it comes with a memory, a memory of something that happened to him when he was a child. He says, I recall once when my father, the Sakyan, was working, probably working in the fields, and I was sitting in the cool shade of a rose apple tree. And then, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful mental qualities, I entered, to make it simple, I entered into this deep state of samadhi. And then the thought occurred to him when he had this memory of entering this deep state of samadhi when he was a child. It was this question, could that be the path to awakening? And then following on that memory came the realization, that is the path to awakening. And I thought, so why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities? And so I thought, I am no longer afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensuality, nothing to do with unskillful mental qualities. So here it is, stepping out of austerities, stepping out of a process of starvation, and stepping into the taste, the taste of samadhi, the importance of samadhi, and how samadhi is intimately intertwined with wholesome pleasure. Not to be afraid of wholesome pleasure, to open to wholesome pleasure. And so tonight what I'd like to do is I'd like to share with you some reflections on this mental quality of samadhi that you might find helpful for your t time here on retreat. Kind of what it is, how to skillfully cultivate it, seeing the place of pleasure in our exploration here on retreat, so essential. And these movements, these movements out of starvation and into nourishment, especially around these modern austerities that maybe some of our minds have gotten just too skilled at. And I do wanna say that I'm gonna be sharing more of some general things about samadhi. There's so much to say about it. So more of a, a general talk about this. So some of you, it might just be reminders and others it might be new information. And either way, I, I want to take some time with this about how to listen to a Dhamma talk. Because either way, I think it's important to start to develop the skill of taking what is useful and leaving the rest behind. The, the, the way of skillfully listening, listening to get a sense of what resonates and what doesn't resonate and to utilize what resonates. And I say this also just to acknowledge that when I speak to you up here, I'm situated, you could say, I'm socially situated in a particular way that in part shapes how I share with you. 
I'm a straight white male. I grew up in the United States. I'm educated. Come from a family, an Irish Catholic family. Practiced Theravada in many different ways and also in the Zen tradition and the Tibetan tradition. A human being that's experienced all kinds of flavors of joys and sorrows and happiness and suffering. And I say this because all of us here, right, we're, we're situated in a particular way and there's, you could say, a, a kind of certain languages that speak to us more than others. And in some ways, you might have to translate what you're hearing from us teachers at times because of how we're situated, because of how you are situated. And at times that will come together and resonate and other times it won't. That's the process of listening to a Dhamma talk to, to get a sense of where that is for you. Because I speak a certain language I give a certain angle, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. That's not, there's not some big D Dhamma out there. It's always situated in some kind of way and resonates in different ways. And I mean language metaphorically and literally. And we see this with language. Like if you just think of the moon out there, I could say the moon. But in another language, la luna, in Spanish. Or in Ger German, mund. Please forgive my horrible German accents. <laughs> but each word, right, it conveys, it gives a different kind of resonance in your body. Can you feel the different resonances of just the different words I use around that object that happens sometimes in the night sky? I mean, in German, it's it's a it's a it's a it's in the masculine, whereas in in Spanish, it has it's in the feminine. It has a different feeling quality to it. It's not just the words that are being used; it's also the feeling that's being conveyed. So, an encouragement to take what's useful and leave the rest behind. To to honor what resonates and what doesn't resonate. And, and hopefully, you know, as the retreat goes on, we'll, we'll explore this more of just how there are conditions, how we're situated and how those conditions unfold in certain ways. They shape the mind and perception and emotion and thoughts. And it's, it's, it's in everything. It's within the Dharma talk. It's within how we walk and how we eat. How these conditions arise into this process that we call me or mine and then disappear. So what does this word samadhi mean? I want to uh, go to a simple definition that we get from the Venerable Dhammadina. The Venerable Dhammadina was, uh, she was, as, as, uh, as at least it said, as she was one of the uh, foremost in the Buddha's disciples in terms of the ability to teach and elucidate the Dhamma. And there's a discourse in the middle length discourses where she's having kind of these questions from this layperson of Isaka asking these questions about the path. 
and she's uh, giving uh, quite a few uh, answers. And so the lay person, the layman Visaka asks, Venerable Dhammadina, what is Samadhi? And she replies, unification of mind, Visaka, this is Samadhi. So what is this? What, what is this mind that's unified or collected? What's that like? And the example I give of it is kind of what's going on right here, to imagine that the mind is like this room here. It has all these parts to it, many of them, maybe 77 parts to it. And when the mind is collected, let's say, around a certain experience, like the sound of my voice coming and going, and all these 77 people are paying attention, have the attention resting on the sound of my voice coming and going, you could say there is deep samadhi. The mind is unified. All 77 parts of the mind are unified right now deeply absorbed within this experience. But if there were maybe four or five of you in the back there having your own conversation, but the rest of you are still hearing the sound of my voice, still the mind would still be relatively co collected. Even if there was 10 or 15 of you having various conversations going on in the room, still the vast majority of the room would be collected around the sound of my voice coming and going. If there was 40 or 50 people having their own conversation. For me, sometimes I, I, I still am like, well, at least there's a little samadhi still in my practice. <laughs> I try to look at the positive side of it. <laughs> so I encourage you. If there's 40 or 50 or 60 conversations going on in your mind, there's still 10. There's still 10% of your, or 10, 10 parts of your mind on the breath or that sound to notice samadhi. So hopefully you hear within this, this um, analogy I'm giving you the wide spectrum of this, of how this word is used, of the entirety of the room, the entirety of the mind being absorbed in it, or unified around an experience to just a, a small part of the mind. And you're gonna notice that, it, it can, it's gonna vary. You're probably gonna experience the, the, almost the entirety of this, of this range on retreat. And as I will probably say a lot tonight, you have so little control over that. You can influence the mind unifying, collecting, but you can't really control it. This is, uh, if, if you're gonna remember one thing from my talk, I think that's the most important thing. You can't control, but you can influence the unfolding of samadhi. And I want to distinguish it from mindfulness. And, and it's tricky because the, the samadhi and, and mindfulness are so intertwined. And so I'm going to give this, this kind of example of trying to separate them out even though they're, they're intimately intertwined. So again, if we have the experience of the ringing of the bell. And I'm going to oversimplify this a little bit but the mind's ability to rest, to unify around that sound is the, the, the quality of samadhi. Mindfulness, you could say, notices that that is quiet when I struck the bell that time. 
that what was louder then. Mindfulness is aware of how the sound is dissipating. Mindfulness can be aware of the multiplicity of hitting it. So mindfulness is aware of these details, the, 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 um, all these details of it. It's, it's, it's aware, it knows that hearing is happening. So it's all of these, the knowing that hearing is happening and the variations in all of this. That's one way to start to get a feeling sense of, of the difference of these, but they're intertwined. It's not, not we can separate them apart. So this might be a helpful way of getting a feeling sense of the difference between samadhi and mindfulness. So that's what it is, the mind being collected. So what's the purpose of it? And again, a, a, a quote from the Buddha. It says, when the practitioner's concentrated mind or the unified mind is, is thus purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability, the practitioner directs this unified mind to the knowledge of the destruction of the taints, or in other words, directs it or intends to utilize it for freedom, for awakening. Another way of understanding this phrase of the destruction of, this, of the taints. And within this movement towards awakening, the practitioner understands as it actually is. This is suffering. This is the arising or origination of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. And this is the way leading to the cessation of, the suf of suffering. What is that? The Four Noble Truths. Really so much of the basis of what we're getting a feeling sense of through this practice that we do here on retreat. So hopefully you're hearing from this that samadhi is not a goal in and of itself. It's, it's what gives gives the mind the stability to see clearly what's going on in this moment. It's really important. It's like the, the refining, the sharpening of being able to sense into experience, to clearly see it or to clearly know it for how it arises and passes away. So not a goal in and of itself. And it's tricky because I think Probably many of you experience this on retreat. There can be something so seductive about some of the the experiences that happen around samadhi. When the mind gets collected, it can feel so. It is pleasurable. It is pleasant. And we want to make most use of that pleasantness. But it's such a hook. Have you noticed that? Like you have it, and then it's like even. And I know I, I remember lying to myself about this of like, okay, I'm going to go into the hall and just sit and just be with what's going on. But there's that subtle leaning of how can I get back into that space that feels so good. I just want another hit of that. <laughs> so that's called suffering. <laughs> Maybe some of you can relate to it. And this is the, the whole dance of samadhi is learning to savor pleasure rather than grasp onto it. And to be honest with ourselves, I, I feel like I now know, I could be wrong about this, I'm still a new teacher, of the look sometimes on practitioners' faces when they're 
sharing with me their practice and underneath they're just trying to get that next hit but they don't want to talk about it in the, in the interview in, in the uh, meeting i know it because i i've done it so much so uh, i'm with you so it's it's uh the purpose of it is for awakening not in and of itself like that and it isn't the end all be all and and the other thing i like to point out about samadhi is that some people have a propensity towards samadhi and others not so much. And that doesn't mean that some people are better than others, it's just that some of us have certain propensities towards certain things in practice. Sometimes it's samadhi. Sometimes people have a propensity towards love or loving kindness. Some people have a propensity towards compassion or equanimity. Or for some people through the practice what starts to really flower is is generosity. Others, devotion. All of these are beautiful qualities, beautiful expressions of the mind beginning to taste freedom. One isn't better than the other. To remember that, for some of you, samadhi might be the thing for you and others not, and it's, it's completely fine. It's like well, what comes to my mind, again, maybe because <laughs> I'm socially located, of course, basketball, right? That was the first thing that came to your mind. Because <laughs> you think just like me, right? Um, and when you think of a, a good basketball team, you have people that are really great at shooting three-pointers and people that can drive to the hoop. People that are really good at defending. People that are really good at, at uh, a rebounds. All these different roles in that game. And all are needed for a good team. They're not all the same. The same thing on the spiritual path. We don't have to be that person. Allowing the Dhamma to manifest in the way it's meant to through our lives and to honor that. So there's many ways to cultivate samadhi. And I, I wanna talk about, um, just kind of say there's kind of two general arenas. And I mentioned these two kind of general arenas to point out that really no matter how you are practicing, you are cultivating samadhi. This is just the way it is. It's, it, 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 it is being cultivated while you're here on retreat. You know, the only exception to this is if, you know, if you're spending all of your time secretly on the internet or reading novels, then um, that might not be the case. But other than that, as long as there's a willingness to engage in this practice, samadhi is being cultivated. And one way it's cultivated, which we're not emphasizing as much on this retreat, some people are doing this, but really not so much as the practice of samatha, which is... Uh, having a practice that, that leads to deep states of samadhi, usually around a particular object like the breath or practicing loving kindness. There's a more of a, a simple, simplified practice of, for example, being with a, with a breath with a kind of dis, kind disregard to other things that are arising. But there's another way that, that uh, samadhi arises, and this is, uh, at least in the commentaries, this is more of a, a term that is in 
the commentarial is not in the early Buddhist text called Kanika Samadhi, which is the Samadhi that happens, which is the, the translation is momentary concentration. So it's when there are, you could say, multiple experiences coming and going, and the mind is resting and being aware of them. And through that resting and being aware of them, this, this receiving experience in this way, just going back to those terms that Andrea was using, relaxing and receiving these, allowing these, that samadhi starts to be uh, nurtured and cultivated. So basically through the practice of mindfulness, it's going to be there. And then going back to, again, the Venerable Dhammadina, when she's having this conversation with Visaka, and, and the layperson Visaka asks, you know, so what is samadhi, which we went over, what is the basis of samadhi? And her answer is very interesting. She says it's the four establishments of mindfulness, what, what Greg was mentioning last night, that engaging in and being mindful in these different areas nurtures samadhi. So this is the cultivation of samadhi in the practice that you're already doing. The practices that all of you are doing are cultivating samadhi. Samadhi being cultivated with one object or many objects. I now want to uh, share with you just a, a few reflections on this process of cultivation, whether it's the cultivation of samadhi or sati or mindfulness, which we're talking a lot about that cultivation, or the cultivation of something like loving kindness or compassion. The Pali word is bhavana. For example, it's used in the term samadhi bhavana, or for those of you who've done those 10-day SN Goenka retreats, he'll use the, the phrase metta bhavana when uh, talking about metta or loving kindness, which is the cultivation of loving kindness. And I'm grateful to uh, both a translator and writer around uh, getting a deeper sense of this word bhavana. The, the, the translator um, and writer, Glenn Wallace, he translated the one translation of the Dhammapada. And he said when, when he brings this word to mind, he imagines the Buddha located where he was in his life, bringing to mind the agrarian culture, the, the culture of farming and agriculture that was surrounding the Buddha. The kind of the earthiness and the messiness, that process of growing food. And to remember, the story I gave you of the, the Buddha underneath the rose apple tree, remember his father is working in the fields. So the whole story about the Buddha being in, growing up in a palace, which is a, I, I love the story, don't get me wrong. It's just not found in the early Buddhist texts, it's, it's, it comes later. And so we find really that, that there's maybe some credence that the, the Buddha was around this type of lifestyle of farming. And, and I bring this to mind, especially when I'm on retreat, to remind myself of this, that this is what cultivation is about. It's like growing food. Like what comes to mind is um, the last couple of years, 
my wife and I have had a um, a bed of potatoes, potato bed. We grow other things as well. And the first year we, you know, prepared this one particular bed and uh, planted potatoes in that. And that first year we almost had no potatoes. Only, you know, like really, really teeny ones. You had to dig up and you just find really teeny ones. And it just wasn't so successful. And this year... It was rocking. Like, we didn't even plan. There was just all these volunteer potatoes. And then we had a ton of potatoes. It was so great. It's fantastic. Still remember the, the last breakfast I had in Flagstaff before coming here. Some of those potatoes. That's how it works. Have you noticed that on retreat? <laughs> like, this is cultivation. Like, you put forth the conditions for... I'm talking about samadhi, but it's the same thing with mindfulness. And sometimes it just does not happen. You have one of those years. Hopefully, (laughs) it won't be that bad, but... (laughs) That's the way it is. And then at other times, voila, they just appear. And you might notice this about samadhi or, or, or even sati about mindfulness, is that it can just appear like that because the conditions have ripened over time. It's not a linear process. It's messy. It has the earthiness of growing food. And I need to remember that because what I'm wanting is I'm wanting a linear, straightforward progression to this path. And I think that, that's, that's why a one place I feel like as a teacher, maybe all of us, I shouldn't speak with my, for my other teachers, I feel like we deceive you because we speak in this language that is so kind of linear that this happens and then this happens. And it can sound like it makes sense. <laughs> but when, when I'm farming, it feels much messier than that. The earthiness of that process. Living is so much more complex than that. And this, this is what you're engaged in, the earthiness of the path, the messiness of it all. It can be such a mess. <laughs> and and that's, that's the practice. So if you feel the mess, you're practicing. That's why I so appreciated Greg last night. Did you appreciate that? The, the description of the raft? That's what it's like, twigs and leaves. These are the images that were given about the practice. Reminding ourselves of the earth and the dirt and the soil and all that comes with something like growing food. And again, to remind myself and ourselves, with growing, so little control. Have you noticed that when you grow food? We didn't have control how uh, uh, those potatoes were unfolding. And all th- kinds of things can happen. Like in Flagstaff, often, usually in the summer, there's usually at least a couple hailstorms that strike your vegetables, you know, putting those big holes in your squash leaves. And that happens. This is the way it is. All kinds of weather can come and go. And it would be so crazy if I blamed myself for the hailstorm. Isn't it like a totally crazy thing to think that I would blame myself for the hailstorm? I mean, I have to agree, I have to admit, I do do this on retreats, maybe like your mind does. But it's wild to blame ourselves when these storms come and go. It's the same thing, just that we have more ownership of, of the internal storms rather than the external storms. 
but it really is the same arising. There are conditions that give rise to that external weather and conditions that give rise to that internal weather. Why claim it? So the world of cultivation, the world of agrarian society, the world of agriculture, the earthiness and the messiness of what you're involved in. I do want to name and uh, allude to some of the conditions that are helpful though for allowing this flower of samadhi to grow, to name the kind of the water and the, the nutrients in the soil that can be so helpful. One is, is just to simply go back to um, the story, is the, the process of stepping out of those modern austerity practices. This has been such an important thing for me because when I first learned about samadhi, I thought samadhi was just keeping the mind on the breath. Isn't that what it's about? Just keeping the mind on the breath. And then, and then when it's on the breath for a really long time, then, then that's samadhi. And that's the main condition, is I just need to keep the mind on the breath. It really didn't work so well. <laughs> and actually just recently that there is a practitioner I was working with that, that really gave such a different light, light around the cultivation of samadhi, not making samadhi happen, but the, the, the cultivation of samadhi. And this was a practitioner who's been practicing for a very, very long time. It's a person I learned so much from. And a, a, a kind of mind that really has a way of collecting in a really profound way and a very stabilizing way. And I was talking to her about what she does on retreat. You know, what's what's the what are the conditions? And she says, "Oh, when I go on retreat, the first thing, you know, the first few days, I just practice loving kindness for myself. Like I'm just interested in loving myself. That's kind of the language she uses. I just kind of get into loving myself for the first few days. And then when the heart is open, it's like so settled. And when the when the when the, when the heart is so settled like that, then it's really easy to be with the breath." And what I realized was this was a mind that was not interested in those austerity practices anymore. And as a result, her heart could settle. And there it was, then the mind could receive something like the breath or hearing, or whatever object it is, you know, whether it be an emotion or another sensation. Because there can be so much agitation when I'm involved in those austerity practices. This is important, and we'll get into the details of this. You know, to, tomorrow night we'll be beginning um, for this part of getting into the Brahma Viharas, and I think Andrea will be introducing us to uh, the practice of loving kindness. And at the same time, when I, I mentioned this, I, I do want to point out I'm talking about it very simply and briefly here. But it has not been something that has been simple and brief for me. This has been a huge journey for me to step out of 
these austerity practices and to really learn how to love myself. So I'm briefly mentioning it, but please remember agriculture, messiness. This is so much of a part of it, but so essential. And then the second part of the story that I shared with you, the, the beautiful image of the Buddha as a child sitting underneath the rose apple tree and, and the mind entering into that state of samadhi and that realization, oh, could this be, could this be the pleasure that leads to awakening? Which implies this skill that I, I deeply encourage you to, to begin to practice while you're here is the opening the savoring of pleasure. As the Buddha says in a, in a different place around, in particular, the, the pleasure of samadhi, he says, I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, that it should not be feared. So this is with, with in reference to when I said, one should know how to define pleasure, wholesome pleasure like samadhi. And knowing that one should pursue pleasure within oneself. I find that so interesting. This is not a, 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 um, a part of the early Buddhist text that I came across early in my practice. I wish I did actually. It's so important. And it can be tough too, that this is quite a skill. I'd like to share with you a poem that I feel exemplifies. This is from Alison, Alison Luderman. She begins this poem. I'm scared. I'm scared to confess to happiness. I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. I'm scared, I'm scared to confess to happiness. I know the jealous fates in their dolorous heaven, how they love to feast on the heart. I know they've already marked the spot where one of us dies and the other stands open-mouthed and uncomprehending as dirt closes over our one song. But for just this moment, I want what I have. Many of us here might know this difficulty, the difficulty of actually confessing to happiness, to opening to wholesome, pleasant experiences that are happening here on retreat. To do, as she says, of just this moment, to, to simply want what I have, to rest in contentment right now. 
this is our practice to open to happiness, to, to pleasure at least. And, and I want to point out that this is the, the challenge of this, some, in, and in part because of how our physiology is sometimes set up, or kind of mammalian physiology. Because there can be a, a, a habitual tendency to be in a kind of uh, a low-grade, continual, what I'd call self-protective response, or a response to threat. And as a result of that, there can be this subtle sense of the system subtly being on guard. Have you ever noticed that? Where the, where the system feels just a little bit, a little bit on guard about what's, what's happening. And then what happens is that when the system begins to relax and settle and feel pleasure, the, the, the physiology can actually feel threatened because it feels like, oh, I'm not on guard anymore and I need to, to kind of tighten up again to make sure I'm safe. And, and I don't wanna, also I don't wanna pathologize that, you know, there's sometimes good reason that our systems are like this, especially in, in modern society for all kinds of reasons, whether it be uh, systemic reasons of systemic oppression or in terms of modern living and the speed of it to honor our, our bodies and our minds trying to take care of us. So it is, can be a challenge. And I think because of that, I think this is why this, this training is so important. Can you begin to notice, for example, if there's a pleasure or something pleasant in the feeling of the breathing, if that's your anchor, or in the activity of hearing, there might be something pleasant about that. For me, what was useful is at times on retreat where I could start to savor and open up, up, up to that was in the walking meditation, feeling the body moving or on a beautiful sunny day like today. Beautiful day today, don't you think? On this planet of ours, right here. To open, to savor that. And can you get clear the difference between savoring and grasping? Again, something that we'll explore more as we go on. But clarifying that for yourself and really opening up for this possibility of savoring. So, so important. I want to say, I think the, I was thinking about the ideal retreat. Not that it's ever going to happen, <laughs> but I still fantasize. I think the ideal retreat would be is that would be, maybe three months would be nine months. So three months, is I think what the Buddha was after is we'd spend three months just kind of hanging out and practicing generosity in all kinds of ways and just feeling how good it feels to be generous and engaging in that training of how the heart opens and how pleasurable that is and to savor that. And then the next three months we'd just hang out and just kind of just focus on our ethical integrity that here we are, we haven't said anything horrible to anyone today. That's a really good thing. 
what a beautiful thing. I mean, there's all kinds of fighting in the world. When I think of my neighborhood, many nights I can hear someone fighting with somebody else. To enjoy that. This is what the Buddha talked about, the bliss of blamelessness, the blissfulness of ethical integrity. This isn't the way I learned ethical integrity growing up in an Irish Catholic family. (laughs) I had to do some unlearning there. But three months of that. This is what the Buddha said. It's this pathway in some ways in pleasure. And then we got, we got three months of meditation. <laughs> it would be different. So again, an invitation to savor. savor. Savor your ethical integrity here. Savor the beauty of this place. Savor when the mind is collected a little bit. And to notice the difference between that and, and grasping. And I think then what I notice when I can start to bring in more pleasure, there's a quality of surrendering or the word we've been using, receiving experience as it comes. And being involved in what Greg and Andre are really pointing to again and again and again, the simple noticing and having this supported a bit. And then lastly, another condition that I think a lot, uh, 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 gives rise to samadhi, and probably maybe the most important, is the skill in navigating what disrupts the mind. Not being as disrupted by disruptions. To me, that's the real key. And I would say if if your entire retreat is only navigating disruptions and learning that skill, that's a great retreat. Because that's the key to samadhi. Learning to not be as disrupted by the disruptions. Making disruptions one's practice, bringing that quality of noticing, of being aware of them. Noticing the attitude of the mind towards those disruptions. Is it grasping, pushing away, or checking out? And I'd like to end with a poem, again, by Alison Luderman, that I think expresses this, this attitude or this cultivation of this attitude towards things that feel like they're getting in our way. And I, I want to share with you the setting of the poem. So you have to imagine here she is. She's gone to the swimming pool to do her laps, her swimming laps. And uh, this is her experience of going to swim. She says, try to love everything that gets in your way. The Chinese women in flowered bathing caps murmuring together in Mandarin, doing leg exercises in your lane while you execute 36 furious laps, one for every item on your to-do list. 
the heavy-bellied man who goes thrashing through the water like a horse with a harpoon stuck in its side, whose breathless tsunamis rock you from your course. (laughs) Teachers all learn to be small and swim through obstacles like a minnow without grudges or memory, dart toward your, your goal, sperm to egg, thinking obstacle is just another obstacle. Try to love the teenage girl idly lounging against the ladder, showing off her new tattoo. Cette vie est la mienne, this life is mine. And thick blue-black letters on her ivory instep. Be glad she'll have to look look at it all her life and keep going, keep going. Swim by an uncle in the lane next to yours, who is teaching his nephew how to hold his breath underwater, even though kids aren't allowed at this hour. Someday, years from now, this boy who is kicking and flailing in the exact place you want to touch and turn will be a young man at a wedding on a boat, raising his champagne glass in a toast when a huge wave hits, washing everyone overboard. He'll come up coughing and spinning like he is now, but he'll come up like a cork, alive. So your moment of impatience must bow in service to a larger story. Because if something is in your way, it is going your way. The way of all beings towards darkness and towards light. Because if something is in your way, it is going your way, the way of all beings, towards darkness, towards light. So may our cultivation of samadhi on this retreat lead to the liberation of all beings. Thank you. We'll just sit briefly.